This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Belle Boggs discusses her new book, The Art of Waiting. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot introduces the rising stars of publishing, courtesy of PW's Starwatch program. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookskin. Welcome back, Mark. Why, thank you. It's very nice to have you here. You want to start us off with the uh, nonfiction this week? Yeah. So, I, obviously, I missed uh, the last two weeks uh, with the girl with the lower back tattoo, Amy Schumer. We had our review out front and center, uh, still at number one uh, with about 95,000 uh, sales today. For those three weeks. Wow. For those three weeks. So, yeah. So, just climbing now, let's look at some debuts here. We have uh, Clean House, uh, number four, exposing our government secret and Lies. Uh, this is by Tom Fitton. Uh, he's the New York Times bestselling author of The Corruption Chronicles. And here in Clean House, he takes us through incriminating documents from the attack in Benghazi, Hillary Clinton's secret emails, and the IRS scandal, and um, the what he considers is the Obamacare swindle. So this is at number four, one of Many right-wing books coming up on the list. Lots uh, and lots. Season. Yeah. Uh, then we have at number 11 by David Wilcock, The Ascension Mysteries, Revealing the Cosmic Battle Between Good and Evil. Uh, Wilcock, who's a uh, frequent guest on the uh, History's Channel Ancient Aliens TV show, updates and expands the analysis in 2011's The Source Field Investigations. We say that there are those who find Wilcock personally compelling and love the juicy details of his youth, but those looking for for guidance on their personal preparation for the global transformation, Wilcock anticipates will find it lacking despite the heft uh, of this volume, which is about 530 pages. Uh, wow. Number, yeah, number 12, we have something that I've not seen in such a long time, and I guess it's pretty interesting, it's pretty cool that there's still published Guinness Book of World Records 2017. Wow. Yeah. That series has been going for very, for a long, very long yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this is, well, this is the most recent one, uh, and it's at number 12. Uh, so and, people are still really into that. It doesn't matter that you can look it up on Wikipedia. It doesn't right. matter that it's all right, exactly. online somewhere. They still want the book for they bathroom reading. For or, bathroom reading, or gift books or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. That's what I was wondering. That's this, pretty this, great. Some of this you could, you know, all this information you can get online, but here it is in one volume that people obviously want. Um, and number 20, we have Cooking It with Kicks, The Art of Celebrating and the Fun of Outdoor Cooking by Kicks Brooks. This is a barbecuing and uh, tailgating compendium for fans of country music. He's the country music icon of radio TV's host, uh, Kicks Brooks. Uh, and so here he showcases uh, and highlights what he considers the all-American pastimes of celebrating and cooking outdoors for family and friends. So kind of interesting that this is coming in September, not at the beginning of summer, but there you go. Uh, I you guess know, it's still it's cookout still, weather. It's still cookout weather. You know, weather global now, so. warming, Mark. 
Oh, right. Cook out weather lasts a lot longer. This is true. This is true. And uh, right uh, in time for September uh, is college football. Head ball coach, my life in football, doing it differently and winning by Steve Spurrier. He grew up in Tennessee and won the Heisman Trophy uh, and led the Gators to six SEC championships. And uh, this is his story at number 21. Finally, at number 22, Tom Wolfe, the kingdom of speech. Uh, he began his career as a journalist, and this is his first nonfiction book in 16 years. We say in lively, irreverent, and witty prose, he argues that speech, not evolution, sets humans apart from animals and is responsible for all of humankind's complex achievements. And that's it. What do we have on fiction? Well, in fiction, there's not a whole lot going on. We do have a new number one and number two, which is uh, always nice. And they're neck and neck. And number one is gr- A Great Reckoning by Louise Penny. We gave this a starred review. Uh, said it's the, the lyrical 12th entry in her remarkable mystery series, which has won multiple Agatha Awards. Uh, and uh, these are all set in Quebec. And uh, this one finds the former chief inspector, Amon Gamache, coming out of retirement to clean up some corruption Mm. and uh, as the story unfolds a web of connections past and present comes to light we say that this complex novel deals with universal themes of compassion weakness in the face of temptation forgiveness and the danger of falling into despair and cynicism over apparently insurmountable evils so there's a lot going on there morally intellectually um, and uh, this book sold very well right out of the gate almost 30,000 copies be sold, um, which is you know, a significant boost yeah. over the uh, first week sales of her last book. So oh, great to great. see this getting some attention yeah, yeah. and uh, putting it at the top of the list. Right below it, uh, with about 26,000 copies sold, is Rushing Waters by Danielle Steele. This is her Hurricane Sandy book. Um, in this case, it's Hurricane Ophelia bearing down on New York City, but it's a uh, very similar experiences depicted in the book to what people went through uh, during Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy, as it right. was called um, when it hit New York City. And uh, Daniel Steele is a, always very focused on people's emotional experiences. And so here you have worried spouses, parents searching mm. for children, a couple of college roommates who think they can just wait out the storm and they're wrong. Uh, you know, lots of dramatic tension that really comes from people being people and uh, how they interact with one another. So that's at number two. I think any other week it would have been number one. The the next the next book below it has you know, something like half the numbers. Wow. So uh, you know, usually Daniel Steele is at the top of the list, and it's actually very impressive that Louise Penny managed to beat her out for that position. Yeah, sure. Uh, down at number nine, we have another starred review. This one is for The Knicks by Nathan Hill. Uh, it's his first novel, and uh, we say it offers an ironic view of 21st century elections, education, pop culture, and marketing with flashbacks to 1988, 1968, and 1944, all of which were really sort of watershed cultural change years in the United States. And uh, so there's... The main character is an English professor who prefers playing World of Elf Quest online to teaching his college students <laughs> Hamlet. Um, and then he learns that his mother, uh, who abandoned him when he was 11, has been arrested for throwing stones at a presidential candidate. And so he digs into her her past, um, her history of uh, being involved or just being caught up in political protests. And uh, one of his friends from ElfQuest helps him out. (laughs) 
uh, and uh, we say the, the Nix of Hill's title is a Norwegian mythological being that carries loved ones away. It's a physical and metaphorical representation of fear and loss, like the undertoad in mm-hmm. John Irving's The World According to Garp. And we say that like Irving, Hill skillfully blends humor and darkness, imagery and observation, and that he also excels at describing technology, addiction, cultural milestones, and childhood ordeals. This is a rich, lively take on American social conflict, both real and invented, over the last half century. So, oh, yeah, and that's been getting a lot of press. I yeah, saw yeah, hundred thousand copy yeah. first printing. Um, Knopf is putting everything they have behind this, and uh, it's clearly paying off. Yeah. And then the last uh, debut on the fiction list that I wanted to note is The Jealous Kind by James Lee Burke at number 11. And uh, we say that raging teenage hormones, gangster violence, class warfare, and a pink Cadillac stuffed with cash and gold bars set up this mystery set in Houston in 1952. So that that sounds made for film. Yeah, definitely. It sounds Um, very James Lee Burke, too. It sounds very James Lee Burke. And uh, we say that Burke has a hit with this dark atmospheric story of teenagers trying to make it through high school without getting killed by mafia hitmen, low-life thugs, and greasers with oily ducktails and switchblade knives. This is 1952, after Mm. all. And uh, Burke portrays Houston as rife with crime, complete with a corrupt police force, and the boys have little hope of surviving this cesspool. But fortunately, they have good parents, an honest detective, and a savvy prostitute to back them up. So... (laughs) This oh, is, sounds good. That sounds good. Exciting. Um, it's got a got a great little sultry cover. Um, really nice, <laughs> really nice design there. Definitely the sort of thing people are going to want to pick up in airport bookshops and be slightly embarrassed to be reading in public. So, sounds sounds like fun. And that's yeah. what we've got on the on the fiction oh, list. Sounds pretty solid. Yeah, it's uh, definitely shaping up to be an exciting fall season. Great. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Belle Boggs tells us about her struggles with fertility. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Belle Boggs on the line. Her new book is The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Medicine, and Motherhood. Belle, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. So this book is based on your own experience with your spouse and dealing with doctors around infertility. So give us a little bit of the background there. Well, um, the book started with an essay that I wrote for Orion magazine. My editor or an editor at Orion approached me and asked if I had anything that I wanted to pitch to them. And I had this idea that I wanted to, because I'm, I'm a fiction writer, and so I had this idea that I wanted to start writing more essays. And I told her that I wanted to write something about infertility, and I wanted to write something about reconciling my sense of um, the treatment of infertility with um, an appreciation of the natural world. And I'm sure that it all sounded very convoluted to her because I told her that I wanted to write about marmosets. And I, I, I actually, I think I told her that I wanted just to write about non-human primates and how they might in, experience infertility. And I wanted to write about writers and I wanted to write about my life as a writer and I wanted to write about IVF. And very gamely, That's a she lot. agreed. It is. It's a lot to kind of cram into one essay. And she agreed to work with me. And um, 
so over the course of the next several months, I worked on the essay. I, um, that first essay, I interviewed um, researchers at Duke University. I interviewed um, gorilla keepers at the North Carolina Zoo. I um, reread some of the sections of Tilly Olson's silences that are about childlessness and waiting and the anguish that comes with childlessness, involuntary childlessness. And, uh, and I also experienced my own um, first set of fertility treatments or of kind of slightly stepped up in, infertility treatments. I was doing um, uh, intrauterine insemination at the time and, um, and, and not successfully. So I was um, experiencing those things. And, and the writing of the essay was really very helpful to me because it would be some time before I would... Um, have the opportunity to try IVF because it's so expensive and it was not covered by um, my health insurance. And I live in one of the um, states, you know, most of most only 15 states um, cover or provide um, mandate that that insurance providers um, cover infertility infertility at all. And my state, North Carolina, is not one of them. So, you know, I, I knew that it, I couldn't afford IVF, I couldn't afford more advanced treatment, and that it may, might be some time before my husband and I decided what we were going to do. So writing the essay helped me see that um, this world and this question about how people build families, all the different paths there are to parenthood, or to resolve resolving to live without children, to living child-free, um, that that was really interesting to me and something that I wanted to write about. So, um, so that's how it started. So you discuss uh, Plan B family making. What does that mean for you? Yes, so I did not um, coin that term. That is a phrase that I found in um, Martha Ertman's wonderful book, um, Love's Promises, um, which is, she's a legal scholar, and it's a book about um, the value of contracts in family making. And um, she writes about her own experience with Plan B um, family building. And how she describes it is that um, it's just, it's not meant to describe um, a second choice or a lesser choice, but instead um, just a more unusual way of building a family. So it could be through adoption or it could be through um, Ertman is gay and has a child with a close friend and then later, I believe, was married. And so they share the care of the son, the um, genetic father um, who is a close friend and the father of her child, Ertman, and um, her wife. So arrangements like that or IVF or other kinds of assisted reproduction and different kinds of adoption, these are all categories of Plan B family making in her book. And I thought that was a great phrase and a great um, way of describing um, what this sort of scattered community of people does, because that's one thing that I did find as I researched the book and, and met new wonderful people was that, you know, it, it did make it feel a little bit like a community. Infertility, which was my experience, is really lonely and or it can be very lonely. It was very lonely for me at first. And um, it's not that I want anyone else to have a complicated path to whatever family life they desire, but knowing that other people had complicated paths and yet they 
um, successfully, eventually, um, achieved families um, that, you know, were wonderful beyond their wildest dreams. That was really exciting to me and encouraging to me. And, you know, in the time that I was really struggling and was attending a support group with my husband, a resolve support group, it, it was very helpful to be up with around other people who were in the same place. Can I ask how long you were waiting? It was five years before we conceived yeah. our daughter through IVF. And I, I know people who waited much longer. It's a long time, and especially for those who do wait longer. You, you talk about loneliness and that point of childlessness. Uh, you mentioned Tilly Olson. Talk a little bit about what Tilly wrote about and then your own experience of, on that. Well, I think that um, that she writes a lot about the loneliness of trying to be a writer while you are also balancing parenthood, motherhood, and needing to make a living and um, having to work a job, having to care for a child, and also um, having to um, try to write what you need to write. And that's a lonely place, too, because you're so busy that, um, you know, you may not have time for the, the other things that sustain you. And I definitely identify with that now. But in a chapter that was um, especially meaningful to me when I was um, trying to get pregnant in The Damnation of Women, she writes about how, in fact, um, it, it, it took a while before we started to come across narratives by women writers um, who were longing to have children or expressed at certain points in their lives a longing for children um, that was not fulfilled. And so she writes particularly beautifully and quotes beautifully from Virginia Woolf's diaries. And you know, it's, I think, um, you know, it's both sad and powerful and uplifting at the same time to read that um, Woolf experienced the same periods of, of doubt and, um, and anguish, right? Um, you know, I'm childless, um, uh, you know, not, um, you know, unmarried at, at one point and, um, you know, connecting that with, uh, I think she writes childless, no writer and, um, and compares herself at other points to her sister. And then later, um, when she was, um, I believe in the throes of writing the waves or she just com completed it. Um, she wrote children are nothing to this. And I think that what's um, exciting about that is to think about the capacity that we have for finding something new um, to throw ourselves into, to get satisfaction from, um, you know, uh, the phrase that a lot of therapists use is post-traumatic growth. And that's, um, uh, you know, there are definitely, um, you know, Virginia Woolf's story is, a, is you know, ultimately a, a sad story in a lot of ways. But knowing, thinking about those moments of uplift, those moments of euphoria after writing, um, I think, you know, it was, it was, you know, just personally sustaining for me. I'm not, you know, I'm no Virginia Woolf, but that was a very sustaining thing to read. So you also get into um, some fictional depictions of infertility. What did you learn from reading those? 
Well, um, you know, one of the, um, I'm a, I was a K-12 teacher for a lot of years, and um, especially when I was teaching high school, I noticed that, right, especially because when I was teaching AP English, the whole time I was teaching AP English, I was in this process of fertility treatment. And I noticed that so many of the characters that we put in front of our, our students um, they, uh, so many of the female characters, the women characters in particular, um, are defined by their relationship somehow to children. So, you know, you read The Scarlet Letter and you think about Hester Prynne and you think about Pearl. Um, you know, you read, um, on the other hand, you read narratives of childlessness and characters who did not have children and they are, they all, they, many of them seemed in some ways um, deformed by what they lacked or that this childlessness was somehow transgressive. And um, that's not to say I don't love these works of literature. Some of them are my favorites, Macbeth. You think about the, the Macbeths and the mm. sort of bizarre um, pillow talk that they have about the, the child they would have had and how um, um, Lady Macbeth would have um, dashed him away if, um, if Macbeth had, ask, had asked her. Um, and then he tells her very excitedly, bring forth men, children only. Um, and then you think about, or you think about, you know, Dickens and um, Miss Havisham in Great Expectations and, um, and just, you know, her, you know, hissing, you know, break his heart. And she's this, she's, you know, she's this transgressive character. Um, the, I think I write longest about um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, not a play I really love, and um, George and Martha and the way their imaginary child is understood um, and the way that the destruction of um, of the imaginary is often understood as um, as necessary. And for me, at the time that I was reading that play or rereading that play and thinking about it with my students, who actually had a very hard time understanding that the sun was not real at first, and they, you know, had to read and reread it to to figure that out. Um, because it is so bizarre to them that someone could carry on, you know, they're young, and just the idea that an a, adult couple would carry on this fantasy life seemed um, seemed very strange to them. So what I admired really was the imaginary life, and um, and so um, I thought about that. I thought also, you know, to be honest, I thought and wrote a little bit about my own work too, and how before I had. Um, before I knew that I would have these problems, I um, had a character in a story in my first collection, Madap and I Queen, um, who is, it's a, a, a secondary character, but um, it's a character undergoing IVF. And, you know, I, I, Rose, I didn't get any of her, I didn't get her treatments right. And oh, no. I also, you know, I, I, I felt looking back that I used the condition as a way of expressing some um, stereotypical ideas about um, infertile women, um, the idea that they're, they're um, self-centered or overly self-focused or um, brittle. And, um, and I really regret that because, you know, I thought that I knew and obviously I didn't. So now that you've gone through this experience, is it informing the fiction writing that you're doing now? Um, I, 
I guess a little bit. Um, I'm working on a novel now, and I do have a character in the novel who has had um, a number of miscarriages and is trying to write about it. And um, so it's a, you know, a pretty minor character, but um, thinking about how to, um, you know, how to be sensitive and also truthful and how to, um, you know, not to use a character's characteristics or experiences to express something that is, um, you know, not, not true to the character. So, um, or, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to go about writing, especially writing fiction, being afraid that you're going to offend people, but I don't, you know, we don't want to do that. So, um, and I, I have thought too about how I might write about, um, this personal experience that I've had in a fictional way sometime in the future, but I haven't resolved what I'll do about that yet. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Belle Boggs, author of The Art of Waiting, who's uh, getting into some detail about uh, fertility treatments. So um, tell us a little bit about how families deal with the costs of reproductive procedures and also with the emotional and physical trials that come with them. They're very invasive. They're very unpleasant. Right. That's a really good question. I suppose it's different for everyone. Um, I attended this support group for a couple of years and I saw, I think, a very wide range of experiences related to um, fertility treatment. Um, and it was interesting to see um, how the group grew and got smaller as people became pregnant and left the group because that was, of course, um, the way that it worked. When someone was, um, had a successful pregnancy, they would leave the group um, so that we could continue to talk in an open and um, kind of safe place about what we were going through. And so um, there were people who were um, who did have some coverage from their insurance companies, which, you know, that's the ideal. And there were people who did not. There were people who kept jobs that they hated because they had some coverage for fertility treatment. Mm. There were people who were successful after um, a few Clomid cycles. And there were people who had loss after loss and stayed with the group for a long time. Um, many of the people in my particular group, which I realize is a very small sample, were successful. And so I'm friends with um, several people I was in the group with for a while still. And um, in fact, our, ch- our children know each other. And, um, and so it's, you know, that's a particularly special relationship to me, um, because I remember very well, it seems very recent that, um, these other women, um, just like me, we thought that we, you know, might not ever get here. 
so um so the other thing that you see people do um as they are figuring out how to pay for fertility treatment in a state where that treatment cost is not mandated as something an insurance needs to cover. Some people will go out of state to um, get treatment that is less expensive. Some people will go out of state to do clinical trials. Um, we certainly all um, shared um, leftover medication. That's really common mm-hmm. in um, in fertility circles is that when you have you know, we take good care of our medication because we know it's really expensive um, and, you know, keep it refrigerated or in a cool place, a cool dark place, wherever it needs to be. And then if you have some leftover, um, you know, you offer it to the group. So that's that's pretty, and, you know, people can choose to do that or not choose to do that. Um, um, that's, that's, that's pretty common and it's understandable when you have um, a medical disease that's not covered by insurance. Um, for me and for my husband, we um, as I said, we, our insurance did not cover IVF, which was the treatment that we needed. And so we bought a cost share plan. That's what it's called, I guess, you know, somewhat euphemistically. It's, um, uh, I, I guess it's a different price depending on your age and your, you know, various health factors. Um, and sometimes you're not even eligible to do a cost share plan, but you pay um, a certain amount that will... Um, cover a certain number of tries. So for us, um, it was a little bit more than $20,000 for um, three fresh um, IVF cycles and then three um, frozen embryo transfers. And um, we chose this because um, even though it was very expensive and very hard to afford, we had to save a long time for to, to be able to afford it, um, we were aware that it was very possible, very likely, in fact, that we would not get pregnant the first time and that we would, we wanted to feel that we could, um, continue to treat this as if it's a disease and continue to try, um, until our doctor felt that we should stop. And, um, additionally, we felt very strongly and our, our doctor agreed that it would be, um, safest if um, we chose single embryo transfer. And um, a single embryo transfer um, for a woman in my age group at the time that I was in the program, um, I was uh, 36 at the time of entry. Um, Single embryo transfer has a slightly less, um, slightly lower chance of success. So if you only have one try, um, it's very um, tempting to transfer two embryos. I mean, I think we were, I think our doctor told us we were eligible to uh, transfer three. If we had transferred three embryos, I'd probably have twi- triplets. You know, that, that would, would have been a, a big possibility for me. And um, that, we know, is not the safest way um, to be pregnant. It's not the safest um, for the infants either, so for the babies. So um, so that was why we chose to, to do what we did. I recognize and um, write in the book that this is not an option that many people have. Um, infertility affects one in eight couples in the United States, but um, I think fewer than half seek any kind of treatment at all, and it's a really small group that can actually move on to IVF. Not everybody needs IVF, but many more people um, would do IVF if they had access to um, to that medical coverage. 
um, for um, so um, another factor is we happen to live close enough in driving distance to a f- um, fertility clinic. Um, we also happen to fit the demographics of um, uh, that fertility cl- clinics advertise to. Um, I was getting regular care at an um, obstetrician gynecologist, so I could be referred to um, the fertility clinic when I needed um you know, more help than I was getting at the gynecologist's office. So that's not true for everyone. Some people have a hard time even just getting that first referral. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so that's something that I learned when I was researching the book. Let's talk about the cultural um, uh, ideals of what it is to be pregnant and, uh, and, and of parenthood and what they're supposed to be like and how that clashes with uh, going through uh, infertility. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think for many of us, it starts when we're really young. Um, we hear the stories of our own families. Um, for my um, students, um, I wrote that, um, and I, I have taught students of many different ages from first grade um, through high school, and now I teach college students. We don't really talk about this in my college and grad classes, but the high school and and younger students would often talk about um, the families that they imagined, and they were often very close to the families that they grew up in. They wanted to have children about the same time that their parents had them. They want to have about the same number of children as are in their families, and um, You know, this is not universally true, but it was very common. It was really noteworthy to me also because I identified with it. Um, I felt that way when I was younger. I thought that my life would be patterned like my parents in some ways, even though I had other plans to live um, farther away from home and to do different kinds of jobs than my parents do, um, that probably would have made having that same life pattern sort of difficult. So um, I think there's that kind of family cultural patterning. And then there's um, just so much, you know, what they call pronatal or, you know, that um, having children is wonderful and everyone needs to have children messaging that we get culturally everywhere. If you stand in line for, at the grocery store and you look at any of the, you know, trashy magazines, which are very appealing if you're standing in line, half of them or most of them have some, you know, is she pregnant celebrity or actually pregnant celebrity on the cover? We follow the pregnancies of celebrities and um, and royalty and are very interested in them. We have um, this, you know, a, a big set of um, rituals and celebrations, you know, as we should, but um, that can be painful for people who are going through infertility or people who even are at a place of not knowing what they want and might feel excluded um, by things like baby showers and gender reveal parties Mm -hmm. and and things like that. Um, And um, so we have all of, um, you know, we have all of that kind of messaging. And it, you know, if you do become pregnant, you continue to have the message that, you know, natural is the best and, you know, everything. I I went to a, um, my husband and I went, we're really excited actually to take this birthing class at the hospital where we planned to have our baby. And, um, but we did not like the birthing class really at all. 
Um, and um, part of the reason was because the instructor um, talked so much about normal birth. And I realize that has a particular meaning in like the doula culture, culture but the word normal is for many people, kind of an alienating word. And um, so this idea of normal birth and natural birth, and we watched a lot of really kind of harrowing natural births on film. And I couldn't watch any of them without just immediately having these, um, this involuntary crying response. And all my friends who had gone through the same stuff that I had, had the same thing. We all just went to these separate birth classes because we were not pregnant at exactly the same time and sort of lived in different places. We all went, watched, heard about normal birth, watched these films and cried. And um, not even because I felt sad, just kind of tears came out of my eyes and it was, you know, sort of embarrassing. And, um, you know, I I didn't have a natural birth and I'm glad that I didn't because um, that wasn't um, what was safest for me. And also, um, you know, it's really, it's really pretty painful. And, um, I was very grateful by the time I had my epidural for, um, getting it. And if I, you know, had it to do all over again, I would have gotten the epidural much earlier. Um, so, um, there's that messaging too, that continues. And I think there's this other, um, message too, and it, you see it everywhere from fertility clinics even. They ha- often will advertise with the word miracle um, mm. somewhere on their web pages. And, you know, we talk about the miracle of birth and that pregnancy is a miracle. And, you know, if you think about miracles, that's not something that you're supposed to have a big hand in. You're not supposed to, um, uh, you know, miracle does not... Um, necessarily go hand in hand with choice and effort. It's something that happens to you. And that was really not my story. And it's not the story of a lot of people I know. Um, so, um, you know, I'm very, you know, glad that I had the chance to go to that birth class. You know, I won't, I'm all the things that have happened to me since I've, um, you know, was lucky enough as I know many people are not, I was lucky enough to get pregnant. I'm very grateful for all the opportunities that I've had, um, everything that I've had a chance to do, you know, as a pregnant person and then especially with my daughter. Um, but I'm also very aware of the messaging um, that surrounds pregnancy, maternity, motherhood, and parenthood. My child was conceived through IVF and uh, one of their nicknames is Science Baby because <laughs> we cared so much about science being part of this that we were we were actually like really excited. We're going to do cool medical science. The idea of miracles really was very far away from our experience of that process. Yeah, that's wonderful. A friend of mine has a onesie that says conceived with love and science. And oh, I um, need it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so um, you talk uh, about you, you talked earlier about um, feeling a love of nature and feeling a little conflict maybe between that and and this sometimes harrowing experience of infertility. What? How did you end up reconciling those things? Well, um, so for the the whole time we were trying to have children and um, my pregnancy, we lived um, 
in the country in Chatham County near the Haw River. And it's a really beautiful part of North Carolina. And um, spending time, I grew up in the country also in Virginia, and spending time outside and in nature and with and observing animals has always been just something that's just always been a part of my life. I can't even just say that it's comforting to me. It's just something that I do and that I enjoy. And we used to go on these walks every day to the river. Um, and we had um, a cross from this easement that my neighbors and I share um, by the river. There's a bald eagle nest, um, this really tall tree with um, a nest that's been there for um, all the, you know, 10 years we've owned the house. And um, the bald eagle pair returns every year to the same nest. Um, they um, invariably in February would nest there and have one and often two new eaglets every year, which is a wonderful thing um, to observe, um, especially if you think about the history of bald eagles and, you know, growing up as a kid, I thought, you know, bald eagles might become extinct. You know, they were endangered then. They're one of the few animals to make it off of the endangered species list. And, um, and our river is very populated now with bald eagles, but it starts, I mean, not for all of them, but for a lot of them in this nest, a lot of the eagles were born in this, you know, hatched in this nest. And, uh, and so we would go and watch them. And, um, I have a lot of strong memories of watching them while I was thinking, you know, so one day I'd be walking down and thinking, oh, I wonder if maybe I'm pregnant because I did this treatment or, you know, maybe this is going to be the month for me. And then the next day I would have gotten my period and I'm there again watching the eagles and thinking, well, no, not for me. So I think, you know, the the natural world is a world of mostly fertility. It was actually kind of hard to find examples in nature of infertility because there are just not as many. There are not many. So it's a world of, um, of fertility, necessarily so, and in the same way that you might see um, babies on the, you know, on the bus or um, out in the world or, you know, at the shopping center or wherever. In nature, if you spend a lot of time in nature, you're going to see, um, in the springtime especially, lots of baby animals. And um, it can feel, or it did for me, it felt for a while like this... Um, like this exclusive club that I would would not join, um, and not that you know bald eagles have any concept of me being in their club, but um, uh, I I think I reconciled it um, just by you know thinking, for example, about the eagles themselves and how rare they used to be, and how I mean for most people they actually don't get to see a bald eagle every day if they want to. And I did have that good luck to live where I live, the chance to go down. And most of, most days in the spring, I could see one. And, um, you know, this incredible history that they've had. Then also thinking, too, about the brutality and um, kind of harrowing nature of the animal world. Um, one thing that a bald, e- bald eagle parents will do sometimes is if they have two eaglets and one is... Um, one is a weaker eaglet, one eaglet may kill the other, and the parents will not stop that from happening. Um, They're also, you know, big hunters and big scavengers. And so um, thinking about that sort of timeless, enduring, and sometimes harrowing 
animal world, um, somehow that was helpful to me. And um, just knowing that I was in a place where I could could see, um, uh, you know, we we're very we were very lucky that I don't live in um, the woods anymore. Um, we still have our, our little house. Um, but um, I saw um, once a mother bobcat um, and her three bob kittens. She was teaching them to hunt in our yard or just kind of down the hill in the woods. And that was it's really one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. So um, I think there's just something very appealing and attractive about um, watching young animals and baby animals learn to do what they need to do in life. We've been talking with Belle Boggs, and you can find her book, The Art of Waiting, in stores right now. Belle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Rose. And thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Millia talks about PW's Star Watch program. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about PW Starwatch program for up-and-coming people in publishing. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. So uh, this is 2016, our second Starwatch. Yes, it is. You know, we started it last year in cooperation with the Frankfurt Book Fair, Mm -hmm. who are, you know, great supporters of the program, and they're eager to promote young professionals. And as as part of the the offering, they the winner gets a all expenses paid trip to the Frankfurt Book Fair this October, courtesy of the the Frankfurt folks. And last year we had a great response, um, and this year we did even better. We had over 300 people submit nominations, wow. of which we um, we were going to pick 40, and we ended up picking 45 because we had so many really? wonderful candidates. Oh, great. Okay. And then from there, we take, whittle it down to five finalists, and from those five finalists, we have the superstar, as we like to call it. And that's the person who goes to Frankfurt. And that won't be announced until Thursday. Right. Yeah, last uh, last year we had announced it ahead of time. This year we thought we would make uh, make it more suspenseful, if sure. you will. Yep. So although we do know who it is, uh, we won't be officially announcing it until the party we're having, uh, the Star Watch party on Thursday of, of whatever next week right yep so and last year the party was a great success i don't know if you were there no no no. you should go this year yeah you too rose i I didn't have a chance last year but uh this year i might uh you know i think we're expecting almost 200 or so people wow that's great um so it's you know it really turned out very well uh we were really gratified by the response last year and i think it shows um how committed many people in publishing are i think my favorite story from last year was Penguin Random House had, I think, five or six honorees, as we, we call them. And, and after the fact, their CEO, Marcus Stoli, had lunch with them all. So Really? Um, yeah. That's so pretty... I that was really, really a cool thing. Yeah. And it really shows you how committed PRH in particular is to, uh, you know, investing in their their talent. And the, the, the people uh, uh, included here, I mean, are, run the gamut of... of- 
book publishing or the book publishing world. So it's editors, publicists. Who, who all uh, are we considering? Yeah, it does. It cuts across everything. Um, book selling is included in there. The booksellers are in there as well. Distributing, agents, and like you said, everybody from editors to production people. I know we have one production person who who's on the list this year. Um, so yeah, we really try to cast a wide net as possible. And there's no... I mean, I, mean, I think you could say it implies that it's young. But we don't... We specifically don't have a cutoff date. Mm-hmm. I mean, in our minds, it's sort of 40-ish. Right. But I think there's a couple of people who are on the list this year because they're a little bit older, but they're doing something different that they really hadn't been doing before. Right. So uh, we, th- we thought they warranted... Uh, consideration. So I know you all want to know we in this week's issue we do have profiles of all 45 people. Oh wow. And, uh, <laughs> 40 of them are smaller profiles, but we do have the five finalists to the superstar uh will be coming from. So we can run those down quickly. Yeah, let's uh, do that. That'd be great. Uh, so Noah Ecker is the executive editor at Random House and he's really have to read his story. He's done amazingly well with picking debut authors and has had some commercial and uh, critical successes with a number of them. Then we have Vita Engstrom, who's Director of Communications at Kensington. And it's, you know, Kensington's a mid-sized publisher. Right. And she got there and helped reorganize the sales and marketing operation. I've worked with her. She's phenomenal. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, we've heard nothing but good things from yeah, about her. Phenomenal. So, um, so glad to have her on board. Then our bookseller is Wente Gibru, who works at uh, St. Louis's Left Bank Books. And we may have talked about this one time before uh, last year when the Ferguson uh, unrest was taking place. Right. Left Bank was a leader in, they kept the store open. Um, they encouraged people if they needed some refuge or they wanted to uh, get a safe place, they could go there. Then they, then they oh, created um, books a reading list, I think it has over 70 titles now to help put the whole unrest and all the whole Black Lives Matter uh, movement into some sort of context. And Wente was one of the main people behind that. So, um, you know, Left Bank got singled out and, and she played an important role in, in helping, you know, as they say, make the bookstore a real part of the community. Uh, next up, we have Andy Harwell, who is at Harper's Children's Books. And to hear his story, I mean, he loved kids' books from when he was growing up. They made a big impact on his life when he was young. And I don't think I've heard anybody happier to be <laughs> in the job that he has than, wow. than Andy. So uh, he's there. And then we have Eric Obanoff, who uh, founded $2 Radio with his wife almost 10 years ago, not quite that long ago. But it's really one of the more dynamic small publishers. Right. Um, they have a, a movie unit that they're trying to trying to get off the ground and they make no um pretensions about what they're about they want to do literary fiction and hopefully it'll sell but that's what they're committed to right so uh he's he's very uh very charged in what he does so and they've they've that's a number of uh critical critical hits and a couple of books that have you know made some best books of the year over the years and once again the the, the people selected here are considered i mean they've been uh uh we some people in the office here have selected but often they've been their colleagues who have uh kind of put them forth right right yeah it's it's an open process but going back to andy harwell for a sec we, he had four people 
different people nominated him. Wow. So wow. <laughs> that was pretty good endorsement. Yeah, yeah. So right, uh, we, right. we didn't want to turn him down. So, yeah, it, it's open you know, to everybody. And we, like you said, we had some people from here um, nominate some different folks. And um, some... Like you said, came from the, came from their colleagues or people who who knew them, so it, right. it was really good. And there's a couple of couple of people here, you know. In addition, and I think more than a couple, in addition to in their day jobs, have written books themselves. Um, I would say probably almost as many as ten. Uh, wow, ten people have have written a book. I think Julie Button is one of them. She's uh, works at Catapult. And she has one of uh, her first book coming out pretty soon. And she's married to our own uh, Gabe Habash. <laughs> right. This is true. <laughs> so uh, that plays that play no role in uh, getting her on the list. <laughs> right. um, and then and there's a couple of others who, uh, who, are, who are there. So, yeah, we're, we're very excited to do it. And it, it's... I think last year the reception actually surprised us, especially at the party. Everybody was very enthused about... You know, recognizing young people because yeah. it is a challenge uh, to attract people to the industry. Even though it's a lot of people who want to do it, you know, we all know the pay's not great, right? And you do hear a lot of stuff about, you know, is print dead? Is books dead? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going right. on? So, you know, it, it's it's um, it's good to have this a very positive vibe. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, this this kind of recognition is not something that people tend to get early in their careers or when they're doing something that's sort of innovative and difficult, uh, it can really be a big boost psychologically. And just the idea that we're looking out for folks like that and like making a concerted effort to support them, I think is a big deal. Yeah, I think that's, you hit it exactly right. And that's what, you know, recognition, it's tough in this industry. There's not not We're all them. very behind the scenes. Right, exactly. Right, yes, for sure. Yeah. And I know you'll, you'll want to know that we always, I think we always talk about our annual salary and job survey, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll definitely talk to you about that. And we, and we yeah. know how, you know, we, <laughs> different things we see there. I, right. We can, we can look at the diversity question again. I haven't looked at it, but right, I sure. think we were very pleased with the diverse number, uh, the diverse types of people we had. I was going to ask. Yeah. Watch list. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like all different jobs, different backgrounds. So, yeah, we're happy. Great. Excellent. Um, well, uh, listeners can read it in depth, uh, on Monday and, uh, look out for the, uh, the winner on Thursday. Look out for the winner on Thursday. Uh, I don't know. I think that the party's sold out though, so. Well, the, then they'll just have to go to our website to see who won. Watch the pictures. Maybe, maybe right. you can sneak us in. <laughs> well, you guys can. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jim. Always great to have you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Gretchen Bakke, author of The Grid, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 